Well, good morning, e &B. Thank you to the three of you who are joining me on this long weekend, wherever you are. Just kidding. Uh, wherever you are, I hope you are doing well. And if this is your first time joining us, a special welcome to you. My name is Matt. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at the church and uh, just have the awesome opportunity to walk alongside our community and D-group leaders. And it's really cool what's happening in our D-groups of just people connecting, um, digging deeper in relationships with others and with God. And if you'd like to be a part of that, please feel free to reach out to me because I would love to connect you with a D-group at the church. I also wear the hat as youth pastor, and I get to serve alongside our youth leadership team and our students. So South Van Youth, hopefully this is still cool. Uh, we miss you, hope you're having a great summer, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, right now, I need you to grab a few things. I need you to grab a Bible, I need you to grab some juice and some bread, because we're going to be taking communion together at the end. So feel free to prepare those elements, and uh, we'll use those together later. Now, we are continuing in our series called This is Normal, where we're simply going verse by verse through Romans chapter 12 and 13, as we look at what does it mean to be a Christian? And our hope by going through this is that it's a good reminder for those following Jesus to see what normalcy of following him looks like, as well as a deeper insight to those who are curious to what Christianity is about. And I hope this serves you well. Now, going verse by verse reminds me of years ago before I met my wife, there was another girl that I liked. She was at my school and uh, I asked my friends, how do I, you know, get to know her? Like, how do I tell her about myself? And this was before cell phones and social media. And they said, oh man, write her a letter. So I went to my sister. I got some really cool paper. I made this kind of booklet thing. And it said, you know, fact one about Matt. Fact two about Matt. Don't laugh. I thought it was awesome. I stuck it in her locker as a creep. I looked around the corner and I saw that she received it. The next day I saw her and said, hey, I saw that you got my letter. And she goes, oh yeah, awesome paper. I really like the paper. Thanks. The paper? Sister, I bore my soul on those pages. I told you every fun fact about me. Like, it would be awesome to get to know me, and you just like the paper. Now, the reason we open God's Word is because it's more than just nice paper, right? These are the words of a God who speaks. He does not shy away from the hard conversations of life, and He gives solutions differently than humans would. No matter how old you are, you have probably had lots of questions about who God is, and why do people follow him? Maybe some of them have been answered, or maybe some you've kept those questions to yourself, and you've wondered if someone could just tell you what it's all about. Like, come on, wh where do I start? Because there's a lot of paper there, you know? So could you just boil this entire book down to what it's all about? Well, you wouldn't be the first person to ask that. We see in Mark chapter 12, there's teachers of the time questioning Jesus on topics of marriage, afterlife, responsibility to government, all sorts of things. And, you know, they weren't asking because they cared about his wisdom or authority or the bigger picture he was presenting. They were just trying to catch, you know, catch him messing up his words. Does that kind of sound familiar in our relationship with Jesus sometimes? We ask lots of questions, but we don't care about the answer until we hear what we want. Finally, in Mark, uh, let's find this, in Mark chapter 12, uh, it says this, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, Jesus is answering them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So these are the two points that we're going to look at today. As a Christian, what does it normally look like to love God and others? So far in Romans chapter 12, we've seen that uh, to love God, you need a new mind. And you get this by receiving his mercy. That makes our thoughts new. We start to think sacrificially instead of selfishly. We desire holiness and to live off God's standard instead of our own. Then, as we saw last week, um, what we have received freely from God, we in turn give it away freely through faith. We use our uniqueness in the body of Christ where we've been placed in, not through achievement, but through God's love. And Paul continues by looking at love. Uh, as we see in Romans chapter 9, or 12, verse 9, it says, love must be sincere. Sincere means without hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is coming from the word hypocrite, which was a Greek stage actor who pretended to be a certain way, but really acted and believed the totally opposite. Someone who would wear masks to convey misleading emotions. It's where we get the word hypocrite. Now, the sincere love that Paul is talking about is not just based on acting or emotions. It doesn't leave when it doesn't feel like it. It's not just a contractional love that says, I'm here as long as I get what I want. No, the word for love is agape, which is a sacrificial love that gives to others. And though we're starting in Romans 12 for this series, we have seen this love in action for the past 11 chapters in Romans. You see, for 11 chapters, Paul has been writing about the agape love that God has for us. For 11 chapters, seeing the problem of idolatry, we worship God's creations and ourselves rather than the creator. 11 chapters of God's love showing us our need of forgiveness from sin because we break relationship all the time. 11 chapters of God's love dethroning the reign of sin so that we could be with him. 11 chapters of God's patient love showing us how to walk in freedom by the Spirit to be identified by the giver of life. And 11 chapters of God's covenant faithfulness to the faithless. God's love is not simply an emotion, but it's a choice followed by an action. It's his motive for everything that he does. Love isn't just something God does. It's who he is. And this love, what it will do, as it says in the next verse, it will lead you to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, sometimes our definition of a loving person is someone who is nice and who always affirms everything in people's lives. But love is discerning. It holds fast to what is good. And Paul uses this phrase elsewhere in his writings when he describes how a husband cleaves to a wife. Um, it's passionately affirming of what is good. It notices the evidence of grace. It is glad for what God is doing. It loves what is holy and beautiful and good, and it hates what is evil because real love can produce hate. For example, I love my kids, which means I hate what can harm them. Um, you know, to really love means wanting what is best for someone, which means you're going to have to discern what's best, what is good and helpful, and also what is terrible and harmful. Now, Jesus loved and loves perfectly. He was tender at times, but he was also harsh at other times. He loudly praised the good and loudly denounced what was wicked. He was kind and tender with the broken, but flipped over tables. I'm not going to do that, but flipped over tables when, you know, people 
made a marketplace out of his temple. His objective wasn't to be nice so that you'd like him. It was to do the best good he could for you. Love is not always nice, but it is always good. When I go see my doctor, which isn't often, uh, <laughs> he'll tell me, Matt, you need to lose 20 pounds. Now that's not nice. That's rude. Like he should just tell me that I'm stocky or that I'm healthy on the inside. You know, that would be nice. That would be, you know, uh, not rude. But what he says, yeah, I take it as rude, but it's good. And in this section, Paul will give us 24 ways that recipients of God's agape love, things that they'll do. It's basically Paul's Christianity 101, and this is his PowerPoint. So we've already, we've seen three of these, and now we've got 21 more to go. So here we go, okay? And it says this, starting in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. So becoming a Christian means we become children of God. The Holy Spirit in us reminds us we have been adopted by God through Jesus. We have family bonds with one another. And a family is a primary permanent set of relationships. Now our kids, they'll grow up and at times some stray, sin and fall. But what do we say? He's still my son. She's still my daughter. And as families grow up and change, you'll have moments when you realize how different you've all become in some ways. But you're bound by something bigger, by a history, by genetics, and the story of your family. And Paul says, love has bonds like that with other Christians. And this isn't just felt, but it's lived out. Brotherly and sisterly affection. We have been adopted by the same merciful Father. So love like brothers and sisters. And as the verse continues, we see that we can rejoice in hope, be patient when trials come, and be constant in prayer. But as you can tell, Paul's PowerPoint is not just 24 ways to live for your benefit. Um, but no, it's about how we interact with one another, honor one another, love with brotherly affection. So it seems that when he calls us to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer, He's still talking about how we relate to one another. We take the hope we have that God is renewing all things and apply that hope to one another. Now, this isn't easy because family love is hard, but love rejoices in hope. When you're frustrated by the clear lack of progress of people that you love and the progress they're making towards Jesus, when you're disappointed with that or stressed out, just be hopeful. Rejoice in what you have seen God do in them. Anchor your confidence, not in them and their performance, but in God and his faithfulness. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is working, so rejoice. Find genuine joy from that hope. And be patient in tribulation with one another. Do this in view of God's mercy. Think of how patient he has been with us how long he has endured our complacency and our sin and our stubbornness and our failures. Think of how he gave us the righteousness of Jesus because we were too helpless to even earn it. Remember his patience towards us so we can be patient 
in the tribulation. That is family relationship with Christians. And when the tribulations come, when the failures come into people's lives that make you lose all hope, pray constantly. We can't change people and we can't fix people, but God does and God hears prayers. So when we see each other's failures, and we will if we're doing church right, (laughs) start with hope and prayer and continue in patience. And through choosing love and taking action towards others, we will contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, A book I'm reading, if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. Uh, It's Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key. And in it, she defines hospitality as using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. She says that hospitable people see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with the house key. And she writes about what a huge impact hospitality had on her while she was a professor at Syracuse University. She says this, Going to dinner at the home of uh, Christians was not highly on my list of long-for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader of the LGBTQ, Uh, writes the recent co-author of a first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University and a soon-to-be tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Because Christians seem like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat. They believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fever pitch, denied women's rights to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience of the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. They believed in manufactured superstitions about sin, which I believed, as Freud declared, simply a cultural phobia deeply held by dupes, whose thinking was manipulated by a universal, universal obsessional uh, jerk. Like, wow, really? Have you heard God described like that? It's crazy. But she went to the home of a Christian who had written to her to let her know that an anti-Christian article she wrote wasn't really sound. But it was through their kind hospitality, which included some heated conversations and long-term investments, that she came to a vital faith with Jesus. And we are called to this as a lifestyle with others. This means it's gonna increase the grocery budget, it will shape our schedules, it will mean not being conformed to the pattern of this world, which is to busy yourselves with everything except meals and friends and strangers. But in response to what God has done for us, we look for ways to show hospitality, to open up your apartment to people, your deck, to the neighbors, your dining room to friends, your family room to the neighbor kids, even opening up your home as a church during this time of COVID to see everything you have as something given to you by God to push back the darkness around you. Now, Paul's Paul's PowerPoint, it doesn't just stop with hospitality. He says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Notice an assumption here. Christians will be a persecuted people. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tend to think that when Christianity makes our lives harder, that something has gone wrong. I'm not doing it right. But the New Testament was written to people whose lives, of course, were harder 
because they were Christians, and to call them to cling to Christ in all of life's storms. Paul went as far to say in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right now in our province, we are mostly free from government persecution and limitations that most of the world experience when it does come to religious freedoms. We have a lot to be thankful for. We can legally follow Christ. Though my guess is that true faithfulness to the whole of the Christian message may not be legal for that long. I was actually talking with a friend this week um, about what is the backbone of Christianity in our city? What do Christians stand up for? Uh, because the authority of Jesus that we share, this can be good news to our friends or it can be a threat. And when our friends take offense, we try to sand all the edges off, you know, off our faith and give up teachings that don't fit in the culture and try to unhitch ourselves away from anything that isn't cool anymore. But if we sand down the Christian faith to make it acceptable so that we're not opposed, we're just not going to have the real thing anymore. Because the real thing always draws opposition. It did for Jesus. So we can expect opposition. And Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Bless them? What does that mean? To bless someone is to want God's grace for them. To want them to have peace with God and a life that they were meant for. Uh, it is to pray, pray for and desire their flourishing. This is the Christian response to those who oppose us. And Jesus said something similar to this in Luke 6. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. He's not just saying to not do bad things for them. He's saying to actively pray for them and do good for them because God's love blesses. Now, this kind of love for an enemy does not come naturally, at least for me. We get into an argument with someone um, and we just want to be right. Or if they've done something to hurt me, I just want to hurt them back. But we're called here not only to keep ourselves from retaliating, but to retaliate with good, with a blessing. And this is only possible if we're living in view of God's mercy to us. If we're living with the gospel of Jesus front and center, if we believe that the gospel, that, you know, I was a wicked sinner, rescued by Christ, um, you know, that uh, I can't see my sins, or I can't see someone else's sins worse than mine. And just as I've received a blessing when I deserved a curse, I can pass on that blessing when they deserve a curse. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We can be going through hard times, whether because we've been persecuted or just because life is tragic and hard. And we can convince ourselves that we don't have time for the depth of relationships with Christians. We get so consumed with our own problems that we couldn't imagine taking someone else's problems. But Paul says to live a life where we share each other's joys and sorrows move toward relationship, maybe even especially when it seems we don't have the time or the emotional margin for them, a follower of Jesus never has a season of life when there is no room for relationships. Did you catch that? There's never a season of life in a Christian's life where there's no room for relationships. I know that there's ebbs and flows and seasons when we can do more and others where we can do less. 
There are retreats and vacations, but we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice as a lifestyle, whether it's our friends or our enemies. We enter into the joys and sorrow of others. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This literally means to think the same thoughts. Now, you might hear that and think, yep, I knew it. Christians are brainwashed. They don't think for themselves. They just repeat what they've been told. Well, in his book, How to Think, Alan Jacobs makes this convincing case that nobody really thinks by themselves. We actually all think with others. And the best thinking comes through humble yet challenging conversations with each other. We actually develop our thoughts through conversation with others, and our thoughts end up looking like the thoughts of those we think with. Now, in fact, really smart people who try to think by themselves usually become crazy, right? They go off into the cabins and the woods, they write manifestos that can be brilliant, but they're just unrecognized and unchallenged. They lack harmony and they end in bizarre conclusions. I, I honestly believe that we cannot think for ourselves, not well anyways. We all need people to think with. And this is why, especially during this season, I am so glad that D groups is not just an announcement on Sundays for our church, um, but it's actually something that's happening in the ENV family as we see D groups multiplying and meeting weekly all over our city to have real conversation with both Christians and those who aren't to simply review, read, and respond to God's word. Now, this at times can look like discussing hard things. And when you disagree with me or with someone else, I want you to be able to make your case as well as you can before I interact with it. Because in a disagreement, you want to hear the person you're disagreeing with so that you can interact with what they really think. And if we are secure in Christ, we won't be easily offended. We don't have to protect some other identity or an idol. If I'm humble, I won't be looking for ways to be offended. I won't dig into my pride. Instead, I'm going to be looking for ways to engage with people. Now, this past week in our D group, we were reviewing Pastor Greg's sermon from last week, and we asked the question, what would expressing normal faith look like for you? Without any prompting, all of us, as we responded, we said that normal faith in our lives would look like telling someone about Jesus. And we even, even gave names of those people that we would share with. We had no other response because we could see what Jesus has done for us. And we want that for others. God allows us to receive his love and then just give it away. Now, Paul ends chapter 12 with these verses. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. For this section, I would just look at it as social media. 
Now, not all of us have social media, but how do we respond to people when they have opposing views than us, or they're purposely trying to hurt us, make us look bad? I mean, doesn't it feel right to attack sin with sin? Um, you know, because if somebody attacks me, like, I'm in my mind, I'm justified gossiping about them because they tried to do something to me first. Or, you know, I'm justified to try and destroy them or to hate them in my heart or to dream about their downfall or fostering bitterness. Well, those came out too easy. <laughs> but, um, you know, it feels right to do this when they've sinned against you. But as followers of Jesus, we do advocate for the weak and oppressed. We work to see justice done and the wrongs righted as much as they can be. But we don't avenge one ounce of sin. But there will be times where we want to. Uh, what can free us from feeling that vengeance should happen? I mean, because you can't fix everything that's been broken. And Paul says, the wrath of God. God really punishes. God makes sure that every sin is paid for. God knows every motive and everything that people get away with. And in the end, when the enemies of God are sentenced, we will not be saying they got away with it. Um, be very sad. And we need to trust Jesus as the perfect judge. So here in this list of 24 points, this is what a Christian who loves God and others looks like. In other words, for those who trust and follow Jesus, this is the new you. This is what your life will be known for. Not for your dreams, your good intentions, your work ethic, your impressive family, or what you can do, but simply responding to and obediently living out what Jesus has done for you. And this will only come from having his same motivation of love. You know, when Kat and I started dating, I found out that her and her friends had individually made a list of what they uh, were each looking for in a potential husband. Now, Kat says she doesn't remember this, but I do. And she had a list of seven things she was looking for in a husband. Um, and one night I asked her, I said, hey, out of your list, how many do, uh, do I match on there? And she said, one, it's someone who loves Jesus. Now you might say, oh, that's sweet. But I was wanting the others, you know, like, uh, I guess, you know, oval shaped, five, nine male, awkwardly funny, luminous, you know, those weren't on there. <laughs> but the one thing that she saw in me was that I was trying to love Jesus. And I wonder, as we make our own list of what we hope people see in our lives, what are you hoping they would see? That you're fun, intelligent, caring, brave, responsible, right all the time? Friends, what, what if the one thing people saw more than anything in your life was Jesus? When people know that you're a Christian, not because you bring attention to yourself, but because when they're around you, they've never been loved like that before. What if in our marriages, it would be hard to notice the unmet expectations in our spouse because you see someone who is wanting to reflect Jesus or someone who needs the grace of Jesus that's also been given to you. Parents, what if you are constantly in awe that your kids care about the world they live in and want to serve it like Jesus? Students, 
What if Jesus wasn't a secret, but your friends knew the source that actually makes you who you are and makes you great? You know, this list that Paul gives, it's not just a to-do list, but it's an opportunity to reflect what is needed in this world, and it's Jesus. It's interesting. Our chapter concludes today, but the letter continues. And, um, you know, after we acknowledge that Jesus is a better judge, the next thing that the Apostle Paul talks about in chapter 13 as he continues his letter is that Christians are to submit to governing authorities while following Jesus. Uh, I would easily go through that with you right now, but I'm conveniently out of time. But Paul Morgan's going to be bringing that for us next week, and I'm really looking forward to it. So why does Paul give us 24 bullet points on what it looks like to be a Christian? It's simple. It's because there are 24 hours in a day, and every hour we are... I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. There's 24 because there's 24. Uh, These are reminders that when you love God and love others as the new you, it's not going to look like your best efforts. It's going to look like Jesus, the one who is genuine and hates what is evil, clings to the will of the Father, shows us brotherly love, patient in affliction. He is faithful in prayer. He shares with God's people in need. He came for the sick. He practices hospitality. Um, He calls us friends. He prayed for those who persecuted him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't take revenge. He overcame death with good. You know, several years ago, a pastor in our city said that the city can give us everything except for Jesus. Isn't that powerful? And the way others will see Jesus is when we love God and love others. This list that Paul gives us is to help us remember how much Christ has forgiven you, how much he has changed us. You know, we're we're not looking at the old selves. We're looking at the new you through Christ. But you may say, Matt, this may be the new me, but people still get in the way. I mean, that most of this chapter is talking about people. It's not even talking about me. You know, they still get in the way. But the truth is, there is more of a gap between you and Jesus than there is between anyone else and you. The gap between you and Christ was infinite, and he had to die to bridge that gap. And this brings us to communion. Um, This is something that followers of Jesus, what we've been seeing through Romans 12, those who have been changed by Jesus have a relationship with him. This is a way that we remember what he has done for us. And so if uh, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus at this time, I I would ask you um, to not participate in this, but to think of the things um, that have been talked about, to reach out to someone Uh, hopefully in your D group or at the church, and we can talk through these things. Um, But right now, if you have your bread and you have your juice, these are symbols to just simply represent the God that we serve, the God who loves us more than we will ever know. Um, And so if you take the bread, this represents his body, which was broken for you. Not not because he lost a bet, not because he was forced to, but willingly broken for you through his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, the juice represents his blood, which covers all of our sins. So when God looks at us, he sees his son. 
Just like when we're looking at Romans 12, we're not seeing, we're not looking to see how awesome we can be. We're looking at how fortunate we are that God loves us and allows us to love others the way he does. And so, uh, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he led and gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as your children, as followers and as seekers, would you please teach us what this means? May we see that we cannot do this on our own, but because of you, you have given us life to its fullest. And Lord, yes, there may be opposition, there may be persecution, there may be things that we cannot do on our own, and that's the point. That's the old us. But God, you love the old us and you have renewed us in such a way so that we can see what life is all about. You haven't given up on us. And God, we say thank you. God, would you be with us in our city, in our D groups, in our families, in our friend groups. May they see the new us, not because we're better, we're more disciplined, we know more, but that they would see Jesus. May our city be the most attractive city in the world because it's simply reflecting Jesus, the most beautiful person. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in worship. God bless.